2: Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media
1: mogul.
3: The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner,
1: the rise, the fall.
3: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're truly some of our favorites. Up next, a story from Brent Timmons. Today, he shares with us a story entitled Balance. Take it away, Brent.
4: Asher had left on his motorcycle for work at his summer job. He had just graduated and needed to make a quick stop at his high school to drop off his borrowed laptop and calculus calculator. Thirty minutes later, my wife answers the phone. The information she was given was brief. Asher had had a motorcycle accident in front of the school. They thought it would be okay, but the ambulance was coming and may end up taking him to the hospital. That was about the extent of the information. Both of us quickly thought the worst, like he had collided with another vehicle when either turning into the school or coming out. The wording, thought he would be okay, registered in my mind as non-life-threatening injuries. Where would they take him was the first question out of my mouth. Tina called the school right back and was told it would be Nanacoke. We wondered how we would know whether to go to the school or to head directly to the hospital. This state lasted about three minutes. I wouldn't call it hysteria. It was more like a laser focus on how we were going to get to where our son was. Then Asher called. He said he was okay, described the situation and told us we just needed to come get him and his bike. We know our son well enough that this immediately put us at ease. I hooked up the trailer, and we headed off. It was a relatively minor event. Asher was slowly turning into the drive of the school. They actually caught it on camera, and he hit a small patch of sand on the asphalt. The rear end slipped out in a heartbeat, and he ended up on the ground, under the bike. The school staff was fabulous. They rushed to his aid immediately and watched over him in the nurse's office as he gathered his wits, and the shaking from the adrenaline wore off. He had some scrapes, the bike had some scrapes, but overall, he and his bike would be fine. This is one of those things. One of those things that remind us how quickly something can happen which could alter the future. It's one of those things that remind us to appreciate every moment. One of those things that changes us. One of those things we are thankful for because of the lessons learned. Motorcycle riding is by nature much riskier than riding in a car or truck. If you look at the statistics, it's, well, you don't even want to know. It's a choice made with a known risk. We let our boys make that choice with that risk. I ride myself. Why would we do that? Would we rather our boys didn't engage in such an activity? It isn't that simple. A life lived without any risk is... Well, it's not really living at all, is it? We take a risk when we choose a college major in the face of uncertainty. We take a risk in participating in a sport when we may possibly be embarrassed by poor performance. We take a risk in choosing a life partner. We take a risk in changing jobs. We take a risk in buying a home and committing to pay a mortgage for the next 30 years. A life without any risk is a life of not moving forward. It's not really life at all. Of course, there are ways to reduce risk, and we do those things, and with a passion. At some point, there is a balancing of the passion to live and the passion to walk in caution and wisdom. And that's really part of the secret of life. People choose different ways to go about it. Maybe you lean on your faith in God, or maybe you lean on your faith in yourself. Personally, I've been disappointed in my own strength way too many times. At the risk of making you feel like I've tricked you into a discussion about God, I'll share this. After we decide whether there is a God or not, and who that God is, comes what I'd say is one of the most prevalent debates about faith. What does God do, and what do I do? People fall all over the spectrum on this. It would take me volumes to try to communicate where I've landed personally. And honestly, who really cares what I've concluded? I'll just say this. I want my boys to walk in wisdom, to not be averse to taking a risk, and to trust God in the midst of doing that. Take a risk, ride safe, and live well.
3: Take a risk, ride safe, and live well. Wisdom all of those words. A special thanks to Monty Montgomery on the production of that piece and to Brent Timmons for a short but profound story with some real, real real-life implications as it relates to all of us and our lives. And we'd love to hear stories from you about this space. We spend a lot of time talking about risk and risk-taking. Our entrepreneur stories are nothing but risk stories. A lot of people think entrepreneurs love risk, but that's not quite right. What we've learned is that they love to manage risk and that a life without risk is not worth living. And so they manage risk better than most of us and live within the space of risk and real traumatic risk uh, because it's how they're hardwired. You can't make an entrepreneur any more than you can make someone ride a motorcycle. It's risky business riding a motorcycle. I've done it for many years of my life, gave it up when I had kids. So I made a very different decision about risk than this family did about, for instance, riding a motorcycle. Send your risk stories, your failure stories, because we love both of those, and what you learn from failure to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. Brent Timmons' story, who listens to us in Connecticut, on Spotify, of all places, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we've told the story of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. We're now going to look at the aftermath of Lincoln's assassination. Our storyteller is James Swanson, the author of Manhunt, The Twelve-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer. Swanson begins by sharing with us how he came to write his New York Times bestseller.
5: I really came to this story by chance. Uh, I was born in Chicago on Lincoln's birthday, February 12th, and when I was a a small boy, my parents began giving me Lincoln comic books, those old classics illustrated and and, uh, uh, crayon books about Lincoln and the Civil War, and trinkets from the Lincoln sites, and when I got a little older, books that I could actually read. Uh, My real interest, and I guess I'd say my obsession with this story, began when I was 10 years old. And that's when my grandmother, Elizabeth, who was a veteran of the old Chicago tabloid newspaper scene, uh, sadly now, now long long gone, gave me a framed engraving, which you might think is an unusual gift for a child. It, it was an engraving of John Wilkes Booth's Derringer pistol, the one he had used to kill Abraham Lincoln. And framed with that engraving was part of a clipping from the Chicago Tribune from the morning of April 15, 1865, the morning that Lincoln died. He was shot Good Friday the night before and and lingered on until the morning. And I remember reading that vividly. And in those days, the headlines were not the broad, horizontal headline across the page. But rather, the left column was devoted to headlines. And then there was a series of descending headlines in that left column. so it would begin with the breaking news. The president shot. And as each edition came out later in the day, more headlines would be added. The president shot is dying, not expected to live. Secretary of Seward stabbed to death in his bed. Of course, that was wrong. It was an early false report that Seward had died, that his sons had been murdered along with him. And I got to a midpoint in the story, and someone had taken a scissors and clipped it just when I was reading the line and ran out the back door, and? (laughs) And I I must have read that clipping a hundred times when I was a boy. And I remember saying to myself, I want to read the rest of this story. And that's how it began. I really wrote the book that I always wanted to read, but no one else had written. Which might sound odd, because there were over 15,000 books about Abraham Lincoln. Probably even more. No one has ever done the complete bibliography. And of those 15,000 or so books, at least 1,000 are related somehow to his end of days. One would think, with all the Lincoln studies out there, there'd be 100 books like this, or, or 10. but. There wasn't one, so that really gave me incentive to do it. So, I'd ask this question. Who was Abraham Lincoln on the morning of April 14, 1865, and who was John Wilkes Booth? It was probably the happiest day of Lincoln's life. It was certainly the happiest week. He had won the war. Lee had surrendered. Richmond fell on April 3rd. Lee surrendered on April 9th. Lincoln gave his last speech from the White House grounds the evening of April 11th. And on April 13th, Washington celebrated with the grand illumination of the city. Uh, Probably the most beautiful night in the history of Washington. Fireworks, flares, uh, lamps, illuminations of all kind, bonfires. One of the papers said that the Capitol Dome was so beautiful that it looked like a second moon had descended upon the earth as a sign of God's favor for the Union and for the victory. Uh, Lincoln met with his son that morning back from the war. He had been on Lee's staff. Then he met with his cabinet, and General Grant was a rare visitor for that meeting. And Lincoln told his assembled cabinet, I had that strange dream again last night. And Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy, said, well, what was that? And Lincoln said that he was at the head of a mysterious vessel moving towards a distant shore. And he was alone. And Lincoln said, whenever I've had that dream, and I've had it many times during this war, something of the utmost importance has happened. I'm convinced that something of major significance is about to happen. The meeting broke up and Lincoln took his wife Mary on a carriage ride through the streets of Washington. He wanted to be alone with her and talk. During that ride, he had told her they had been very unhappy ever since the death of their son Willie in the White House in 1862. 600,000 dead, Union and Confederate. It was a crushing burden on Lincoln. And the Lincolns had grown apart during the war for many reasons. And he told Mary, we must be happy again. He told her that they might go back to Illinois and he could practice law when his second term ended in 1869. He wanted to go to the Pacific Ocean, he told her. He wanted to go to California, but he reminded her again, we must be happy again. She wrote shortly after this ride that I've never seen him so happy. In fact, I told him, you alarm me because you've not been this happy since just before the death of our son, Willie. That night, they decided to go to the play, Our American Cousin, to seek release from the exhilaration of victory. So that's who Lincoln was on that day. Uh, It was his week and his day of triumph. He had a rough start in office. But he learned how to command generals, how to build armies, how to articulate his goals to the American people. And he, he had done what he promised he would do. He won that war and he destroyed slavery. So who was Booth that morning? 26 years old, one of the most popular actors in America, exceedingly handsome, athletic, women and men would stop in the street to watch him as he passed. Generous, vain, Funny, uh, egomaniacal, politically motivated to be a lover of the South, of secession, a supporter of slavery. He once said, slavery is the best thing that ever happened to the black man. He was standing below the White House window on April 11th when Lincoln gave his last speech. And when Lincoln talked about giving blacks the right to vote, Booth turned to a Confederate and said, that's the last speech he'll ever give. Now we'll put him through. He didn't even need fame to gain access to Lincoln's office in the White House. Any one of us could have gone to the Lincoln White House, walked in the front door, approached the office suites, and tell one of his two or three male secretaries, I want to see the president. Often you'd be told, well, he's busy now, sit on that bench over there. It might take a couple hours. You would be admitted to the presence of the sitting president without being searched, uh, without being identified. There were no methods of identifying people then. There were no driver's license, no photo IDs. And Lincoln would regularly place himself in the presence of strangers unknown to him. Booth could have walked in. Lincoln had seen Booth perform. Lincoln would have been happy to receive Booth. Lincoln loved reading Shakespeare to friends. He corresponded with other actors. Uh, Booth could have gained easy access to the White House and slaughtered Lincoln at his desk. Uh, We'll never know why. Certainly Booth was building himself up to a climax to strike against Lincoln. He was fantasizing about it. He began drinking more heavily. Maybe he wasn't ready psychologically to kill until later. Uh, I don't know why Booth didn't do it part of it perhaps, maybe he wanted to kill Lincoln before an audience, and really stage that performance. The theater was actually a great way to do it in escape, because the theater audience was trapped in front of the orchestra, and when Booth got on stage, he was closer to the back escape route than the audience was, and in fact, only one man out of 1,500 people in the theater even stood up to pursue Booth. So it, w- it was counterintuitively smart to kill him in the theater and have his horse waiting in the back. Uh, we'll never know why. but. It was a shocking lack of security. Lincoln eschewed security. The Secretary of War tried to have him uh, have more. A hundred death threats were found in Lincoln's desk after he was assassinated. He was almost assassinated in Baltimore on his way to Washington on the inaugural journey in 1861. It's almost as though, even in a civil war that killed 600,000 people, it was unimaginable that the president could be assassinated. No sitting president had ever before been attacked. And it, it was just beyond strangely beyond people's imagination, I think, at the time. he had even stalked Lincoln at the second inaugural. He was within 50 feet of the president, looking down on him while he read that magnificent with malice toward none, with charity for all speech. And getting drunk at a bar shortly after that, he pounded his fist on the table and said to a friend, what an excellent chance I had to kill the president on inauguration day. He was almost as close to me as you are now.
3: And you've been listening to James Swanson, author of Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer my goodness, what insight here, thinking about that day in Lincoln's life on April 15th, and that day in John Wilkes Booth's life. And on a stage, I have no doubt, after having read this book, and I love this book, by the way, go to Amazon and pick it up. It is well worth reading. You won't put it down, actually. Uh, he wanted to do it in the theater. As a great actor, would, He wanted to stage his final performance. When we come back, more of this remarkable story the story of Lincoln's assassination and its aftermath here on our American story.
0: Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. sign up using code champion and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever.
1: Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.
3: And we return to our American stories and to James Swanson, author of Manhunt, The 12-Day Chase, for Lincoln's killer. Let's pick up where we last left off.
5: Booth needed a catalyst, though. And that came when he visited Ford's Theater midday to pick up his mail, and someone said, Lincoln is coming tonight. And that's the trigger that set off the imaginary clock counting down in Booth's mind. He knew he would have eight or nine hours to reassemble his conspirators. He had gathered them earlier, several months before, to kidnap Abraham Lincoln during the war and hold him hostage as a masterstroke to end the war. But that plan didn't work out. Booth wanted to do this because he hated Lincoln. Lincoln was really an American Caesar to John Wilkes Booth. He wanted to punish Lincoln the tyrant. He hoped to change history. And of course, he wanted eternal fame. He had it in his lifetime, but he wanted to be immortalized as a Southern and ultimately an American patriot. So he had just enough time to assemble his co-conspirators, get his guns, his supplies, his horses, send certain messages to people whose help he needed. And just as the Lincolns were riding to Ford's Theater in their carriage with their theater guests, John Wilkes Booth called the final meeting of his conspirators at 8 p.m. at a hotel two blocks from Ford's Theater. And that's the first moment he told them, We strike tonight. I shall kill Lincoln alone. He turned to another conspirator, Lewis Powell, an ex-Confederate soldier, said, you will go to the home of the Secretary of State, guided by David Harold, one of our other conspirators, and you will murder him in his bed. He's been in a terrible carriage accident. He's helpless. He can't move. Go in and kill him. He told George Atzerodt, a German immigrant, you will go to the hotel of the Vice President, where he is unguarded, you will knock on his door, and you will kill him when he answers the door with a knife attack or pistol fire. They broke up the meeting, and that was the last time the the group of conspirators ever met together again, in full. You all know the rest of the story of of what uh, Melville called that uh, bloody, awful night. And I won't rehearse the, the facts of the assassination, except to say Booth performed it to the hilt. He really created a new kind of art form, which I've called in the book performance assassination. He wanted to escape. It wasn't a suicide mission, but he wanted to be seen and celebrated. When he crept to the president's box and shot Lincoln and jumped to the stage of Ford's Theater, he wasn't wearing a disguise. He hadn't shaved his mustache. He did nothing to conceal himself. He turned to the audience and faced them and cried out the state motto of Virginia, six semper tyrannis, That's always to tyrants. Then he cried out the South is avenged. Then just as he left the stage, he really exulted to himself. Only a few people heard it. But just before he vanished from sight, he said, I have done it. And he went out the back and got on his horse. Uh, The next 12 days is really a a wonderful story of missed chances, of luck, and of irony. Uh, Booth was riding ahead of the news. He made his way out of Washington. And he was able to survive because he had planned the route in advance. He knew many of the people he would visit along the way, including the notorious Dr. Samuel Mudd, who certainly should have been executed for his involvement with the Booth Plotters. He encountered Confederate women, secret agents and their teenage daughters, young Confederate soldiers, 19 and 20 years old, who swore they would help him, former slave owners, even some ex-slaves who helped him and guide him, Uh, a wonderful man named Thomas Jones, who was a Confederate river agent who had ferried hundreds of people across the Potomac River and helped Booth and David Harold cross after hiding them in a pine thicket for uh, several days. Booth went the wrong way on the river. He lost two days of time. He injured his leg when he jumped from Ford's Theater and he had a wasted day at Dr. Mudd's. Uh, The pursuers, and there were several thousand of them, didn't know where Booth was. And they could only travel on horseback or by steamboat. So it's really an incredible story of essentially one man on a horse or in a wagon or in a rowboat with one companion trying to outrun several thousand pursuers who had access to trains, steamboats, horses, and the telegraph. Uh, I do point out that if Booth had not been injured and had a few uh, pieces of bad luck, I think he could have escaped. He could have made it into the Deep South, where some counties had never seen a Union soldier. He could have made it into Mexico, which was his plan. And he might have even escaped to Europe. Uh, Ultimately, I think he would have been caught there, like John Surratt, one of his conspirators who did flee to Canada, fled to Italy, joined the Pope's army, but was recognized two years later and brought back to America for trial. One thing that I enjoyed most about doing the book was meeting a number of incredible characters that I knew very little about at the beginning. And I'll just name a a few of them, and then tell you how I think Booth did get away with this. There's Fanny Seward, the wonderful daughter of Secretary of State Seward, who valiantly helped battle against the the powerful assassin Lewis Powell, who stabbed her brothers, who stabbed the US Army nurse, who almost stabbed her to death. And her first-hand recollections, which she recorded in her diary, are a vivid, wonderful, moving, horrifying shocking account of the Seward attack. Uh, Sadly, she died shortly after uh, the assassination. She would have been a wonderful writer. Another character, Laura Keene, the actress, who was on stage and ran up to the box and cradled Lincoln's head in her lap and his blood stained her dress. I have quite a different take on Laura Keene. She's she's portrayed quite heroically in all the other books on the Lincoln assassination, but I I reveal some interesting things about her, and I I invite you to reconsider her actions and, and what she did and said. And one of my other favorite characters who added great insights into Booth's psychology his state of mind, his early years, is his sister Asia Booth. She wrote a secret book about her brother, which was not published until years later, but she began writing it in the 1870s. And she did something, which I'm going to read a brief passage from now that leads really to my final point about how Booth got away with this. She saw that her brother was going to become famous, and she tried to influence it in the way we remember him. And to her, Lincoln and her brother were paired tragic figures brought together mysteriously by history, and this is what she said. Her brother, and I'm quoting now, saved his country from a king, but he created for her a martyr. He set the stamp of greatness on an epoch of history and gave all he had to build this enduring monument to his foe. The South avenged the wrongs inflicted by the North. A life inexpressibly dear was sacrificed wildly for what its possessor deemed best. The life best beloved by the North was dashed madly out when most triumphant. Let the blood of both cement the indissoluble union of our country." Do you see what she's done? She's almost saying her brother is is like a historically necessary figure, like Judas. Um, There can be no Good Friday without Judas's betrayal. Somehow there can become no reunion of the country without the murder committed by her brother. Booth's body was returned to the family four years later. It had been buried secretly, and parts removed as souvenirs. But Vice President Johnson succeeded to the presidency, and he pardoned the surviving conspirators, and he released from the grave those that had been executed.
3: And you've been listening to James Swanson, the author of Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer. And I would urge you to go to Amazon and pick up the book. I promise you, you will not put it down. It's a heck of a story. And in this man's eyes, in John Wilkes Booth's eyes, he's the hero. And he thinks in the end that he did something great and good and virtuous. And that's what's so interesting about this story. And that's what's so interesting about the nature of man, the nature of sin. And this is why the book is so compelling. When we come back, we're gonna continue with this remarkable story And again, the man who watched Lincoln's assassination is something we did, too. Go to OurAmericanStories.com. You'll get Lincoln's assassination through the eyes of the superintendent of D.C.'s police department at the time, played by one of the great reenactors in all of America, the Ford Theater's reenactor. He did that for us, especially here on Our American Stories. When we come back, more with James Swanson, the author of Manhunt, here on Our American Stories.
1: Listen to the assignment with Audie Cornish, streaming now on the iHeartRadio
3: app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard hitting episode today, a lot of controversy well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists.
0: You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human.
3: This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great
2: conversation. Thank you. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury
3: And we continue here with our American stories and with the author James Swanson, the book Manhunt, The Twelve-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer. And now we return to James Swanson and the story of John Wilkes Booth and, to date, the biggest manhunt in American history.
5: One of the most remarkable things I found in, in researching this book was what Asia Booth said about his grave. Uh, And it really made me aware of of the memory of Booth and and how we need to challenge it, I think. This is what she said, that no, no epitaph marks his grave, and there's no stone. He's buried in the Booth family plot. And her book closes with this graveside elegy. But, granting that he died in vain, he gave his all on earth, youth, beauty, manhood, a great human love, the certainty of excellence in his profession, a powerful brain, the strength of an athlete, health and great wealth for his cause. This man was noble in life. He periled his immortal soul and he was brave in death. Already his hidden remains are given Christian burial and strangers have piled his grave with flowers. So runs the world away. That was one of the most shocking things I'd read in the tens of thousands of pages that I read researching this book. And in a way, she's right. And here's how I think Booth has has gotten away with it in American memory. We don't think of John Wilkes Booth the way we think of our other assassins, Lee Harvey Oswald, James Earl Ray, cipher men of no accomplishment that that we revile for what they've done. Booth has his own monument. It's called Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. All his artifacts are in the basement museum there, his diary as if awaiting a final entry is open for us to see, the pistol he used to kill Lincoln, which children, uh, over a million of them, visit a year and marvel at, the photos of his girlfriends in his pockets. Near Ford's theater there are street banners with his photograph blown up to massive size directing tourists to Ford's theater. I would, would pose this question. Would you go to Dallas, Texas to find Lee Harvey Oswald banners near the book depository? Would you go to Memphis and find James Earl Ray banners? Somehow Booth has been drained by modern culture of his dangerousness, of his evil nature. The fact that he was a killer, a racist. He murdered our greatest president. And yet, we think of him in an almost antiquarian way. Uh, We think of him as the tragic young actor who threw away his life and, and his talent for a cause that was wrong. And I don't think we condemn him the way most Americans did in 1865. I think this is partly because Booth performed this so well. And he's almost tricked us into believing this isn't quite real. it's It's a play. He performed the assassination. He performed his escape. He performed wonderfully an impromptu play on the twelfth night in the middle of the night when the soldiers surrounded him at the Garrett barn and engaged him in dialogue and repartee and set the barn on fire. Those were the, the footlights of the stage, and he knew that was his last performance for the American theater. Um, a couple other examples of how I think Booth has gotten away with this. If you go to the new Abraham Lincoln Museum in Springfield... The theater is dressed to appear just as it did on the night of April 14th, 1865. The state box is festooned with flags and the framed engraving of George Washington that hangs from the front of the box is the actual one that witnessed Booth's leap to the stage. You can follow Booth's steps up the curving staircase, retrace his path to the box, enter the vestibule, and recreate his view of Lincoln's rocking chair. You can sit in the audience, and while listening to a National Park Service historian lecture on the assassination, you can stare up at the box and imagine Booth suspended momentarily in midair at the apex of his leap. John Wilkes Booth would have loved it. An entire museum, one of the most popular in America, devoted to his crime. I must have fame, he once exhorted himself, fame. In the main rotunda, figures of of the great Frederick Douglass, of Grant and Sherman, of tableaux tableau of the entire Lincoln family. And who was looking at them with hate-filled eyes, a life-size wax figure of John Wilkes Booth? In the gift shop, I found for sale to children toy Derringer pistols. It was unbelievable. And I would say again, would you find wax figures of, of Oswald at the Kennedy Library in Boston, uh, at wax figures of James Earl Ray at the King Center in Atlanta or standing outside the Lorraine Motel, or, or replicas of, of Oswald's Manliker O'Connor rifle for sale to our children? I think not. Uh, Booth was so avid that before he killed Lincoln the night of the 14th, he wrote his own op-ed to be published in the papers the next day so that the American people could read why he killed Lincoln. Uh, He worked hard on it. He sealed it in an envelope, he handed it to an actor friend and said, I may have to leave town rather quickly, and I might not be coming back. And if I don't come back, will you deliver this to the National Intelligence Editor uh, the next day? That man was so terrified that he had possession of that letter that he destroyed it. And it was never published. Later, he purported to reconstruct the letter. But I I note in my book that I don't believe his reconstruction of the letter, because his attempt to reconstruct the letter is based on a memo that Booth wrote that was discovered in his sister's safe after the assassination. So I think this actor, John Matthews, made up the letter and didn't really remember it. He just sort of paraphrased a known Booth document. The one thing he did, the only thing he remembered about that letter, which I do believe, it it was signed by Booth and then he signed his co-conspirators names. Matthews was adamant that the others signed it. But but we don't know what the content was. But based on other Booth documents, we can guess. He was crushed. And he records this in his memo book during the escape. He was crushed that that op-ed was not published. Then, when he was hiding in that pine thicket for five days and four nights, being cared for by Thomas Jones, the Confederate agent who brought him food, Booth also implored him, bring me the newspapers. We're not certain what all the issues were, but based on the distribution of Confederate uh, mail, we know that the Confederates had access to certain northern papers pretty quickly. And if Booth had read any of them, he would have read how he had been damned for this loathsome act. And he was crushed to read his reviews. It it really took the wind out of his sails while he was hiding in this pine thicket. He couldn't move. At one point, Union Cavalry came within 200 yards of his hiding place. And he just had to sit there and wait and read what the North thought of him. It it was his lowest point uh, in the escape when he saw that his own article had not been published and when when he read the newspaper editorials condemning him. With respect to what would have happened if Lincoln survived, it's the great unanswered question of the Lincoln assassination. Who knows? Maybe Lincoln's death made it easier for the Republicans to pass the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. I don't know. Maybe radical Republicans would have found Lincoln too lenient. After all, he just wanted them to go home to their farms. Lincoln didn't want to put any of the Confederate leadership on trial. Not even Jefferson Davis himself. He didn't want to try any of the generals for treason. He wanted to have a easy peace for the South and bring the country together. That's why he asked the band at the White House to play Dixie a few days before he died. He did that as a symbol. that It's our song now. It's not the southern song. It's not the rebel song. It's an American song. Maybe we would have done to him what uh, the people of England did to the man, I'm convinced, saved them from Nazi invasion. uh, When Churchill was no longer needed, out. Of course, Lincoln would have retained office. He couldn't have been ousted from the presidency. I'm convinced that somehow, and maybe this is just a hope of mine, that Lincoln's generosity, his magnificent insights into human nature and human psychology, uh, his wonderful ability to speak and write and communicate, would have somehow made post-war life better for the freed slaves. So in the end of the book, I want to make sure that you don't sympathize with John Wilkes Booth. There's a temptation to do it because he had a side that was charismatic, that was mesmerizing. And you spend 12 days with him in my book, really I put you in the saddle with him side by side so that you meet everyone he met along the way and experience everything he did. But Booth is not the hero of my book, certainly not. Uh, The hero of the book, and my hero, is Abraham Lincoln. And even though Lincoln leaves the scene in the first quarter of the book, I hope that you'll find, that you find his memory and his presence and legacy to linger throughout the book. And that by the time you get to the end, when I finish with Booth, you'll agree with me that he's not a folk hero, he's not an antiquarian curiosity, he was a racist, A murderer and he killed one of the greatest of all Americans
3: and you've been listening to James Swanson and what a story he tells by all means pick up Manhunt the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer there's so much more there he just skims the surface here in this piece of storytelling great job as always by Greg Hengler finding the story bringing it to the air editing up the piece a great story a tragic story James Swanson Manhunt, the story of the chase for Lincoln's killer, here on Our American Story.